I'm a firm, massive believer that everybody has a story to tell. And our guest today, Bishop Dr. Joe Aldred, definitely has a very interesting story for us today. Joe Aldred was born in Jamaica, came over to the UK as a young man, and over time became seen as a community leader. Although he's not a fan of the title community leader, he's someone that organisations and individuals alike look up to for leadership and direction. He was on the Windrush advisory panel that the government put together, but ended up leaving that panel for reasons he explains in this interview. He is a published author and has published several books. And he's regularly featured in different publications such as The Voice. We have a very, very interesting conversation today discussing things like black economics, black identity, and just his very inspirational journey as well. So stay tuned for a very good interview. Joe Aldred is currently retired and volunteers with the National Church Leaders Forum. He's very passionate about making a change in his community and ultimately leaving this world a better place. So, without further ado, this is 1000 Voices and here we have Joe Aldred. Good afternoon, sir. How are you today? Good afternoon. I am very well, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much and thank you for coming on to the podcast. I really appreciate your time this afternoon. Very, very, very much looking forward to speaking with you. I know you're a community leader um, and, you know, I've seen some of your pieces and read your autobiography as well, actually, before today. So very, very, very much looking forward to speaking with you today. Um, You know, what I want to start off with, actually, before we get into what we're going to discuss, do you mind for people who don't know who you are, just giving us a little bit of an introduction um, to yourself? Sure. So my, my full name is Joseph Daniel Aldred. Uh, my friends growing up always tended to call me JD, uh, which uh, got into trouble later on when I became minister and the elder members of congregations dislike young people calling their pastor JD. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so that's my uh, full name. I'm generally known as Joe Aldred. I, I have a clerical title of bishop in the Church of God of Prophecy. And, um, and I have an academic title of doctor, having completed a PhD at Sheffield University. So the big title is Bishop Dr. Joseph Daniel Aldred. <laughs> but Joe Aldred will do just fine. All right, that's perfect. And usually I start off with going starting with upbringing and those kind of things there. But I'm going to change it a little bit today. So we just we were speaking just before we started recording. And I was telling you about the ultimate goal behind 1000 Voices, which uh, for people who are listening and may not know, is to work towards reducing wealth inequalities within the UK. And I can't remember the stats off the top of my head, but then there are massive wealth gaps between black Britons and other ethnic groups within the UK. Um, and then Joe had some very interesting things to say about that. Um, as to some things maybe we should be doing more of and less of um to work towards reducing those and um yeah do you mind talking about how you feel what steps you think we should be taking well thank you um one of the challenges i think uh, our community faces now in the uk and in other places too is the um the phenomenon of highlighting disparities and you're referring to one disparity where, and I don't know the figures either, but you can bet your bottom dollar that people of African and Caribbean descent in this country, in terms of wealth, have less money than um, our white counterparts, and probably than some of our Asian counterparts. Um, And my worry is that we are in the habit now of highlighting these disparities. Not that that is a problem, 
However, if you highlight disparities and think that the simple or profound act of highlighting disparities is what we have to do, then I think we are going to be disappointed. Uh, people get awards, uh, university titles, um, get lauded for highlighting uh, disparities, making it known, which is a good act. However, for changing disparities, I think we, you need a very different mindset. Uh, because if by highlighting in the country like the UK, if by highlighting disparities, we think suddenly they disappear because we highlight them, we are going to be disappointed. As the stats continue to show, uh, you know, it's not for lack of knowing about disparities in terms of how, how we're stopped by police, how, 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 how much um, we, we, are, we, we, we are underrepresented in various areas of health and education. So it's not lack of knowledge. Um, we know these disparities. However, to change them is more than publicizing them. And the Joe Aldred School of Wisdom says that where you go to make change is inside. We need to take responsibility for that agenda of change. Uh, so we, for example, need to make sure we buy insurance policies. So when we die, we don't leave our families with debt. We need to make sure that the what the pound gets circulated in our community more times. It is less at the moment than any community. We need to change that habit. We need to stop being afraid of each other and, and, and trust each other more so that you know, I can invest in you and you can invest in me. Um, and it's only by changing our own habits internally in our communities that I think we're really going to um, uh, make the changes that we are hoping to make by um, making known the disparities that, that exist. So that is not to say we don't need partnership and we don't need allies, we do. Nobody is an island. However, in terms of agency and self-determination to make changes, we must take responsibility first and foremost for that and not think that all we have to do is just let it be known and all these nice white people who are you know kneeling on our necks are suddenly going to get off and and just step get up from around the table and say oh you can sit now uh, ain't going to happen in a thousand years we must take charge of our agenda you mentioned when you're speaking there, uh, you mentioned trust quite briefly, actually, you brushed over it, but about trust. And um, you spoke, you're talking about, you know, having to change internally first, making sure we work on ourselves as individuals before we can start to see that change um, as a community in our society. Uh, on the trust aspect and building on top of that as well, do you feel like there are, um, what kind of blocks do you feel like they are that are stopping us from um, moving forward and reducing these disparities, whether it's wealth, whether it's education and you know, representation in these professional fields and so forth? Well, we, we have real challenges. Um, you know, first of all, in terms of the number of years that we have had critical mass as African-Caribbean people in the UK, it's not that many. I'm from the Caribbean. We're talking about 73, 74 years since the Windrush landed. Now, we know Black people were here before that, but in terms of what I would call critical mass. It's since that time that we've that that we've had the numbers. Well, seventy to eighty years is no time in in, in generational development. Okay, so I think we ought to give ourselves a little break on that. That we we're really 
relatively new here. We're not like the American blacks who were there from the time when, you know, Columbus was in the Caribbean. Um, uh, we've just come come here in numbers. Uh, and if you look back at certainly my history as a person of Caribbean heritage, and you look back at the history of slavery and then colonialism, uh, we have got used to not trusting each other uh, because some people found that beneficial to them to make us not trust each other. And so when you um, come out of sla slavery and you come out of colonialism and you come into a situation like Britain where we're now free agents, um, we have to work at that trust deficit between each other, people that look like us. So if you want a carpenter, um, for example, um, try and trust a black carpenter first. Um, Nelson Mandela, the great icon, tells a story in his, in his autobiography, La Long Walk, uh, not Langless Jamaican, Long Walk to Freedom. And, and he tells a story about when he was on the run from the government in, um, in, in South Africa. And he was in another African country. I remember the name of it in a minute. Ethiopia, I think it is. And he said he was on a plane. He had to be taken out of the country quickly. He was on a plane. And he then became aware that the pilot was black. And he talks in the book about how momentarily he was terrorized, my words, by knowing that the pilot was black. So even though he was fighting for black liberation, he still had reservations buried deep in him about the capability of a black man to fly a plane. He wasn't lauding himself for it. He was pointing it out as one of the contradictions contradictions that we, we live with. And that's, but that's just a reality for us. If we're not careful, we don't trust the plumber if the plumber is black. We don't, you know, as a, as a black person, we don't trust um, the technician, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we just have to now start to learn the hard graft of trusting each other. As I mentioned, I'm from the Caribbean. One of the big things in the Caribbean was called partner, um, fr from which you get credit unions now big one called the Pentecostal Credit Union, which kicked off from that base and uh, here in, in the country. So we, we brought the partner, P-A-R-D-N-A, partner, from the Caribbean. There are various um, typologies of, of the partner, but it, where I come from, the partner was where, you know, you and I and say six other people join a partner and we, we throw hands, as it used to be called. We throw a hand, right? So it may be, say, let's say it's 20 pound a week. So each of the eight of us, let's say 10 of us, throw uh, 20 pound a week each. So 10 times 20, what, 200 pounds, right? So every week, one of us gets 200 pounds. The person at the center of the partner is the banker. It's completely unpaid and who is responsible to collect the money from everybody and pay out each week. Now that's trust. And if you ever as a, as a banker um, fail to keep the money that you were given, your reputation would be completely trashed for life. Okay, so, 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 so we've had elements of that trust in society before, and we still have it now, is the point I'm making. But we need to build on that trust so that when I see you, I see a fellow human being made in the image of God, not somebody less than if you facing me were white, then somehow 
that would be full of esteem and my attitude towards you would, would, be, would be uplifted and elevated. But when I see you, a young black man, my attitude towards you must be as elevated as my attitude to any person sitting there conducting this interview. And I hope I am true to that in what I do. So, 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 so yes, we absolutely do need to, to trust one another more than we do, because otherwise we're not going to become a cohesive community that then impresses ourselves on the wider community. We will always be seen as something somewhat fragmented and, and untrustworthy and leaky. And I, I think before we came on, I was saying one other thing that in the world we live in, power is the thing, right? Power is the name of the game. And I'm a devout Christian, um, but people who keep on telling me that I must go, you know, asking somebody, please love me, please, you know, please like me, please, no, 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 or, 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 or any other begging attitude, those are weak attitudes. Even in the case of race, I'm begging nobody to love me. The power that resides in me, uh, and particularly as a Pentecostal Christian, you know, people talk about power, the power of the Holy Spirit, and they talk about speaking in tongues and stuff. Well, I don't do much of that stuff. What I believe that the power of God does, the power of God makes me strong. Uh, so somebody says they don't like the color of my pigmentation that God made. Tough, mate. That's your problem. You, you really have a problem. Now, when you start to use it against me and against our people, then of course we have a challenge there. But deep inside, if you think that somehow your dislike of me makes some impact on me internally, then I'm just telling you, uh, I'm afraid you don't. Um, so we need that uh, power. We need, we need the power inside of us that makes us stand up as fellow human beings like all other human beings. And then we need to build that power base around economics, around politics, around education, and so on. It's as we build ourselves into a power block that others take notice. Yeah, there was a lot of very, very interesting points in what you said there. And when you were talking about the trust and the partner um, things side of things, I thought that was very interesting because it got me thinking about my parents and how they do things. So uh, my parents from Ghana, they were both born in Ghana and came over here to when they were, my mom is a teenager, my dad in his very early 20s. But they have they have an, a system like that as well that they do with their own people yes. where everybody, you know, every month or whatnot puts money into a pot and yes. then it'll get paid out every single month to one person. And on top of that, in that pot that they have, they if there's any kind of a big kind of event, it can be a wedding, it can be someone's funeral, someone's it could be, I don't know, any kind of thing. Even things like when I got my GCSEs, then they'll take yes. and then whoever it is um, yes. needs that support at the time, which is so cool. And so when I'm thinking about that, it's like the trust and that community, that that um, community backing and building, it's like it's prevalent back home from wherever, whether it's back yes. in the Caribbean, whether it's back in Africa, wherever yes. from. But then when we come over here... Where is it now? <laughs> yeah, it, I don't know what happens. Of course, I can tell you that early on in our time, you know, if I talk about the, the Windrush era, the post-Windrush era since 1948, uh, there was a time when that trust was there. Um, I'm from the church, and I can tell you that there was a time when 
people used to worship together irrespective of what denomination they come from. So there was a bedding in period where that trust was needed because you were in a hostile environment and it was important to work together, uh, meet together, talk together and so forth. And I think what has happened is that as time has gone on, we have fanned out into wider society. Um, we become more in independent of each other, dare I say, um, all of which uh, and more are good developments. But we have needed to work harder at how do we still stay in community. Something else which has also not helped us, I think too many of our people um, have what I would regard as an integrationist approach to, to, to multiculturalism. And for a time, it is as though um, what is important is not that you, you, you nod to the black person that you see walking down the street like we used to do, but that you now, you know, forget about that, now integrate into your society. Now, the problem with integration, uh, assimilation, is that you lose you and you then become camouflaged into the prevailing cultural mores. That's not multiculturalism. Multiculturalism for me is where you and your parents from a Ghanaian background come into a space like the, that the UK. I and my Caribbean parents, my Jamaican parents come into this same space and we remain Jamaicans and Africans and you remain Ghanaian and African and you contribute the peculiarities, the strengths, even the weaknesses of your cultural uh, form into this shared space. I do the same. The Morris dancers from England do the same, right? What we do then is that we, we coalesce, we don't lose each other. So I don't stop being Jamaican and you don't stop being Ghanaian. And the, the classical white English person don't stop being Anglo-Saxon, right? We, we come together and, and, and we form something new. Uh, I do a bit of theology and I can tell you what that is talking about is the incarnation, the incarnation, the incarnational approach where, you know, the story of Jesus is that Jesus is God, but Jesus comes to, into the earth amongst human beings, put on human flesh, but never stop being God. And so what you have in, in the Jesus figure is, is a God-man, a God-human, um, somehow coalescing. Well, that incarnation where God is incarnated into humanity, into human form, I think it's a good lesson for us. What, what, we, what we shouldn't do is come to England, lose Ghana, come to England, lose Jamaica, lose Caribbean, lose Africa, and just get baptized in, in, into, into Britishness. No, Britishness needs to be infused with your Ghanaian traits, with my Jamaican traits, my Caribbean traits, your African traits. And it is then enriched by that coming together. Too many of us, I'm afraid, have sacrificed our historic roots in order to somehow blend in. And that is not going to help us in the end. That's very interesting. So with all of this talk of community and everything like that, um, I'm wondering now, just to take it back to your upbringing, um, a couple of things are coming to my head. First of all, 
it'll be interesting for you to paint a picture as to what life was like for you back in Jamaica when you're growing up there and particularly in the community aspects do you feel like you grew up um you know in a strong with a strong community sense and then from there when you've moved to the UK you moved to the UK in 1968 i believe it was right yes and that was just after that um the enoch powers speech, which is i think his speech was not mistaken oh. just before, I, I came in september and i think he made his speech if i'm not mistaken in april or may yeah so I mean, yeah you came just after yeah, yeah. which is it was a crazy i read over that speech again last night because i read it before and i read it again last night just to refresh my mind it's like it's a crazy speech and i'm wondering uh what that that parallel is like for you first of all living in jamaica growing up there and then coming over here um to the uk just outside birmingham and how you know what what that was that period of time was like for you well it can be a long story a short story i'm going to give you the medium version and uh, you may <laughs> yes. still have to edit um but so so i was born um in jamaica whilst jamaica was still a, a colony of the united kingdom so when I was born in 1952, um, I was British, right? I was the British West from the British West Indies, right? So I, I, if I had got a passport, and when my dad came to England, he came on a British passport, right? Um, so, but but growing up as I did, a real country bumpkin. Um, so my dad had left when I was about two, come to England as an economic migrant. I insist, not because. Um, anybody invited him to come to help build the country. He he came looking for um, for better for his family, economic better. Because Jamaica, as a former colony of Britain, Jamaica was a slave colony, right? In from which the United Kingdom, Spain before it, and then the United Kingdom, sucked out the living, whatever, out of Jamaica, out of the economy, and so on, and so. If you're growing up like I was as a boy in the in the 50s, 60s, um, and you live in the country like I did, it was very basic living, very basic. There was no electricity, there was no running water. Um, you know, everything was basic. Um, and that's how I grew up. We, we, our family home was a two-room block. Mm. How my parents had 11 children, conceived <laughs> 11 children in there, I still do not understand. And it, it's different now, of course, we've embellished it over the years. Mm. But, but for all the time I was growing up, that's what it was. And But at the center of that community uh, was the church, the church I grew up in, school, which the church also did, but the education system slightly different. And I grew up being very sure of myself. My dad wasn't there. My mother um, didn't do much disciplining. So I had a, an interesting, you know, unlike many of my siblings, actually, there are 11 of us. Um, I'm number eight. So I kind of in, in an indeterminate place there. I didn't get much pressure from many places, but I was still brought up in that poor space with my mother, with our mother as the mainstay in terms of parent. Then there's church and school around that. And then there are the neighbors. 
Um, and I, I, I just seem to thrive in that setting. I, I, you know, the extended family that's much talked about as an African phenomenon is very much alive in the Caribbean as well, very much alive where I was born. So, you know, Sister Joyce across the road was like an extended mother, you know, and uh, Sister Bibsy over across the road, extended mother, and they were extended uncles and so on. So I grew up in that sort of familiar space. Church uh, had a bit of a, a moral bent to it, you know. Are you how are you doing? Uh, how are you doing? How are you getting on? You know, are, are you living the life and so on? So, grew up in that space. Um, what I didn't get, and I didn't know that I didn't get it, was any sense of where I, Jamaica, Jamaicans, sat in relation to Britain as a colony. I got none of that. Um, I got that Columbo, Columbus discovered Jamaica in 1494. I got that he found the Arawaks there and um, gradually they died out. Um, and, and then somehow Jamaica is replenished with more Europeans, with more Africans, with more Asians, Chinese and Arabs and so on. Um, but I never saw that colonial set up as a as anything that existed uh, i do remember when i um was uh, looking after my papers to come to england i mean i was 14 then i was 15 when i came and when i would go to town if you popped into a bank or the travel agency called chinese chinese <laughs> and the chinese travel service that i that, that i used or, so when you went into into their place, their offices, um, or the government passport office, you know, the people behind the desks were all light-skinned, um, thin-lipped, straight-nosed people. I, I remember noticing that, but it didn't say anything to me particularly. They, they just looked pretty, you know. Um, and it's interesting how, you know, your shape your, around what's beautiful and, and so on were kind of being informed even back then, even mm. though I was unaware of the history of slavery and colonialism and, and race and so on, till I came to England uh, before I really re read them. Jamaica, I mean, I have a very classical sort of British education even, you know, so I remember my favorite book was... Um, uh, Stevenson's um, Treasure Island, you know. Um, I, I, so th that's how it was. Then, then I then I came to England um, because my parents sent for me, um, and I believe that because of the changing um, legislations of which I was completely unaware, that there was a race to get me here before my sixteenth birthday. Um, I've never checked it out, but I believe that's what that's what the timeline was. And so I got here in September, and I was sixteen in. In, in October. Um, and from there, of course, you know, a, a whole new life set in. Um, to this day, I, I don't quite get my head around it because I settled into living in England like a fish takes to water. Hmm. I really did. For a, for a chap who would never flicked a light switch, you know, who didn't, hmm. didn't grow up wearing shoes, didn't grow up with, with, running water, the indoor toilet. I mean, I just took to those things as if they were second nature. And to this day, I still wonder. I think maybe it's something to do with um, with an almighty God who had great mercy on me 
and, and kind of prepared me for what was ahead, I think. And what role do you feel like this childhood experiences that you had have played in the person you are today? I think it's made me very confident of who I am, my identity. Um, it makes me absolutely um, have no wish to lay it down and pick up something else um, as, a, as a human being. And thankfully, I've been able to go into further studies, particularly theological studies, that has confirmed from my faith perspective um, how I am in the world. Uh, and that childhood also, which was a survivalist experience, right? So if where you live, you don't have many resources, you learn coping strategies, you know, and so you just do. And um, those that, that sense of uh, a survivalist instinct, um, an instinct to progress, to, to do better, to do well, to do better, to do your best, those things drummed into me from I was uh, growing up. Um, good teachers as well, I should say, at school, taught you good principles. Um, I think they, they've all stood me well in, 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 in later life. Okay, great. And let's talk about family for a little moment. So you've come from a large family back in Jamaica, and you've come over to the UK. And then so I read through your book, like I was saying, and then when you came, you were young, you got into sales, um, got married and had three young daughters so you're doing that and at the same time was involved in the ministry at the same time so I'm wondering like how how were you able to juggle all this particularly from a family aspect um, do you feel yeah. that there was uh, yeah do you feel like you were able to juggle it and if you were to go back to that period of time would you do anything differently well, as you say very quickly into, into the UK it came at an awkward age because I'd finished school so I didn't go to school here. I went to a further education college and didn't do particularly well there. Um, I, I think our education was not um, thought through. And, you know, if you, this, this small acts series um, depicted that era very, very well, um, that the education system here, although it was similar to the education system in Jamaica, I think the way uh, black people were perceived is that we were automatically assumed to be underdone not 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 up on on the curriculum so when i came the first thing that i that happened to me and people like me was that we were put in classes at bourneville that was not appropriate for us nobody really took the time to see where you were and what was best what was what was best for you however coming out of that and um, my very first job actually was with the telephone manager's office as a, as a clerk um uh, dealing with numbers and telephone lines and stuff like that and then from there i took the National School of Salesmanship course and passed it, and they gave me a job. Um, and it's a life I'm about three years out of Jamaica, right? <laughs> I passed my test first time, my driving test, and I got a company car, and I was selling photocopiers to industry. I mean, what kind of life is that? You know, so <laughs> three years after coming from the, the, the deep rural um, St. Catherine, St. Catherine, Jamaica. Um, the, the ministry thing, I mean, my first ministry really was singing, uh, you know, I was renowned for singing uh, within my church for a very long time. Um, and then that led in and fed into speaking and, and um, you know, preparing uh, little sermonettes and stuff like that. And then uh, in, in my kind of church, the Church of God Prophecy, uh, and not just officially, but unofficially, there's a kind of a, a way that churches tend to discover you. 
if you have talent, it will it will emerge because there are the, the mothers who will invite you to the prayer meeting. And then when you get there, not only will they ask you to pray, they'll ask you to speak. So you, after a while, you develop and you, the understanding that what you must always do is turn up for these meetings having prepared something. Right? <laughs> and so on, because you will be called upon. And the same thing would happen in church and so on. So the, the church, the, the development of ministry was, was something that unfolded over time. I never once thought that I would be a minister, ever. It never, never, never crossed my mind. And even when it was happening to me, I was being asked to do this, that within the church, you know, teach Sunday school. I mean, what qualified me to teach, please, <laughs> um, you know, to lead the youth groups and so on. Even then, it never occurred to me that becoming a minister was was going to be part of, of the deal. So my pursuance of a sales career was very serious. And and I that's what I wanted to do. That that that's how I was going to make it make make a living. And then having got married young, I think one of the advice that my wife and I did not take was, don't get married yet. Save some money and so on. I think you asked me if I could turn the clock back. Mm. I, I think that is something that I think I would want to rethink. Um, getting married, I was twenty one. Uh, you know, here nearly 16, so you're talking about four, four and a half, five years, right, since I mean, um, didn't have any money at all. <laughs> uh, we got married, went to, went to France on the honeymoon, walked everywhere because we had no cash. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yes, I, I think I would rethink that. Both our pastors, my wife's pastor from London and my pastor in Birmingham, said to said to us at different times, you know, you're too young, we think we should wait a while. But listen, here we are 48 years later this year um, uh, from a from a, a, a very slow start as uh, two children, really. Um, and we're, we're still together having achieved a whole heap. So even rethinking the idea of you, know, you should wait a while until you've got some, a better foundation. I probably would think it through again and do it exactly as I did it before. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say is that, again, I have to attribute it to a, a gift of God, a gift of the Spirit. Juggling has been me. You know, I just do not remember a time when I just had one thing to do. Um, and maybe that's no different to many other people, but I can speak for me that juggling roles has been an ongoing part of my life. Um, and as I've gone on to work in different uh, areas of life, my wife says I'm, I manufacture work. And those who work with me in a professional sense, will, you know, some of them regard me as a bit of a hard taskmaster because I'm always gravitating to the next big thing. Um, but thankfully, too, I'm a bit of a starter finisher, so I, I don't tend to abandon things halfway through. I tend to pursue them to their end, and consequently, we've managed to achieve quite a few things. So that juggling, I think, with a bit of grace from the Almighty, has enabled me to, to do things in, in a number of different areas, different directions, um, which somehow, somehow, they don't all work, but uh, somehow in the end. And I, I think we see something of a dynamism about a gift for doing life, which somehow is founded in that school of hard knocks that I grew up in as a boy. That's that's amazing. That's the way you painted there. So from a community perspective, 
what are you passionate about? Uh, yeah, what what kind of work from a community community perspective are you passionate about? Well, let me start in the church because that's kind of where I'm rooted, right? It, so in the church, I am very very interested in development, right? um, progress, particularly of young people, but not just young people, people generally, um, and because of my church, justice. That's within the church, right? I, I don't like people just come to church and just become, you know, just sit down, just just come sit down, listen to a preacher preach to you and come back next week again and come to the altar and I then pray for you. No, no I don't. And that kind of a passive Christianity is not something I enjoy at all. I like my Christian, my Christianity and my Christians to be a little bit more active, even outspoken, even rebellious, um, challenge, um, grow, don't just be passive recipient of information, go search your own out um, and challenge me as a pastor. So, and then because my church is rooted in the United States of America and in the deep South of America, which a number of Pentecostal churches are rooted in, there's been for a long time now, this sense that that headquarters is rooted in a whiteness that is quite racist. And we see that, for example, in my own case, in, in my church, it's not the only one, where the, the general bishop has never been other than a white American for over 150 years. And then, so, so right now as you're talking to me, I've just fired off a letter with some friends to that headquarters to say, you're doing it again in 2022 and we're not happy about this, okay? And then there are some theological things in the church that I think are problematic and speaks to the issues around justice. So, for example, if you, if you have a church, as is the case with some churches, including mine, where you, have a teachings about, where you have teaching about the Holy Spirit that says, for example, that unless you speak in tongues, you are not baptized in the Holy Spirit. When probably half of your congregation will never be able to speak in tongues because it, you know, the Bible itself tells you not everybody has that gift, right? So you lay that down as a law, then what happens is that you tell people, and I've seen this with my own eyes and felt it in my own heart and spirit, some grown men, particularly men, but not exclusively, who never speak in tongues in these Pentecostal churches. And so in those spaces, they are never fulfilled because they live all of their lives chasing this elusive tongue speaking. And so they can't grow because the message is that until that happens, you're really not fully saved, you know? Now, to me, that speaks of justice because it's wrong. There's nothing in the Bible that compels that. And so that's, for example, something that I, I could give you many more, but I'm just saying, I go, I get, give me two examples there. For me, where justice in the church is important. Uh, we, we, we must not subdue people under uh, bad rules, bad theolog theology, and, and keep them infantile. Um, they, they cannot be fulfilled. Right, so that's, that's in the church, a very little tip of where I come from in the church. But in, in community, again, I am looking for that sense of growth and development. Um, I'm looking for that sense of people exercising agency, self-determination, and I 
hugely despise when so-called community leaders like me, um, not a label I use very often, because um, nobody's ever elected me to be. <laughs> uh, but, you know, just in the generalities, um, I am I'm, I'm never happy when um, people occupy that space as leader for their own benefit, for their own gain, or in ways that take away the agency of others. So I don't like the idea of somebody speaking for somebody else. I can understand speaking with. I don't like somebody standing up for somebody else. I like standing with. I like agency and I like self-determination in community. And when I don't see it, and especially when I see others utilizing the space for their own ends, very often for funding ends, that really gets me annoyed. It's very interesting, reading through that letter or an article you wrote for The Voice newspaper a couple of years ago, I think it was, and you talk about black agency there as well. Yes. Uh, do you mind expanding a bit on, on that term and what that means to you? Yes. Well, the idea of agency, you know, I mean, I mean if I go back to my theological framing of, of things, uh, the belief that I hold that God created humanity in the divine image and likeness. Now, God is a free agent. That's what we understand about God. God is sovereign above all. And God says to us as the created order, you too, made in my image, you have sovereignty over your domain. Hmm? So that means that whatever happens in my, my sphere, I must not just be a passive recipient of, but an active participator, an active driver, an active initiator. That's what agency is about. Agency is about taking initiative. Agency is about taking responsibility. Agency is about driving the agenda. Uh, so when, for example, we look, if you look at Britain at the moment, one of the challenges, I mean, we face many challenges. Um, uh, take, take the Windrush scandal uh, as a, one example. Um, agency is that if you are part of a diasporic community, in any country, um, you need to ensure that you take care of your business. That's agency for me. So if you were in Saudi Arabia, let's say, you, you know, if you find yourself in Saudi Arabia, well, you need a permit to get in. And if anybody were to come and ask you, you know, by what right are you here? You could show them that permit. If you didn't have a permit, you know, they have to take your word for it. One of the challenges we have around Windrush is that the government made some insidious, wicked and sinful laws that they had no need to make but because they were feeding a particular beast called anti-immigration um, in, in this country. They always have to show that they are, you know, they're in control of immigration, right? So they made these rules back in 2012, 20, 2014, 2016 that said, you know, you have to be able to show that you have a right to, if you could look like an immigrant, right, you shouldn't be here, which inevitably mean that very few white people would get asked, but a lot of black people would get asked, right? 
Now, if you if somebody says, Joe Aldred, where's your, you know, show me your, well, you have my passport, right? Got my passport. If I didn't have a passport, then I become a suspect. Right? So the laws were unjust, non-reasonable, and, and, and racist, in my view. However, the only people who got caught up in those laws in the hostile environment are those who did not have documentation to show. So I'm conceding that the laws were unjust in the first place, but I'm also saying that I don't buy when people say, well, it's through no fault of your own that you're... you're. I am saying, well, come on. Um, agency says to me that you must make sure that you have your... Where, you know that you need to have to show your right to be at a particular place and without blaming the victims here i'm saying one of the lessons we should learn from this is going is that you cannot depend on the landing card you can't depend on the look after your affairs you may expect them to but you can't depend on them to you must exercise your own agency to exist in the space in which you do and it concerns me that as a community, we are not willing to concede that and to be clear that the only people caught up in the scandal, pernicious that the, the, the laws were and still are, and I'm calling for them to be repealed, but the only people caught up in them were people who were not able to prove that, that, that they had the appropriate documentation for here. So that's a bit of a, an expansive um, thing about agency. But for me, it's about how you control the matters that relate to you and not subcontract them to somebody else. And, yeah. and one of the challenges, of course, that, you know, that goes on here is you look at who, who it is, the people who like to seemingly uh, act for us, represent us, and... It becomes very suspicious, you know. I, I, Malcolm X in the seventies. Um, Malcolm X talked about how the plantation was set up, and we're still talking about community, but how the plantation was set up. And the plantation, you know, in the in the Caribbean, the Americas, was set up in a way that saw hard workers of the slaves, cottoning or sugar caning or, or whatever else. And they were, their son, some of them died on by, uh, by their own, sometimes on orders from above. And then you had some of the slaves, still slaves, but they lived in the master's house or mistress, or they lived in an annex next to the master's house. They were, they were still slaves, but their life was qualitatively different from the slaves that were in the fields. And they, according to Malcolm X, had an, he called them names I'm not going to use, right? But uh, they, they had an interesting role because they related to the slave master, slave mistress in the house, for whom they were a reassuring presence um, that they would keep, because of their good position, they would, uh, try to ensure that the, the field slaves didn't riot, didn't rise up, didn't burn down the house. Of course, if they were to burn down the master's house, so too would the slave who lived next door to the master's house mm. suffer a loss as well. So they had, they had this interesting place. They To the slave in the field, they say, listen, don't, you, there's no need to burn down the master's house, okay? I'm negotiating with, with them. We're, we're going to make things better for you. 
and to the master mistress in the house don't worry about you know i am i i am i'm negotiating with them and i'm telling i'm going to give them i'm telling them i'm going to give them better better right so when we look at britain you see a very very i see a very very if you look at the people at the top of the the um i'm not sure what you what you would call it now but if if you look in society now and you say right look at the people who are our black representatives for example you know the ones you turn on your tv you see lenny henry last night on the on the program you see trevor phillips presenting you see and so on one thing is is very interesting is that almost all of them have white partners now, of course, everybody is at liberty to partner who they wish. So I'm not actually chastising anybody at all. But what I'm saying, if you look at what you see, you'll see that nearly everybody up there um, have a white partner. So in terms of agency, when, when I look up there, it, it seems to suggest to me that the way to get on in Britain is to have a white partner. And I, a greater black, those who say they're defending me, can also partner me. Show me that you really believe that black is beautiful in a way that I'm not convinced if nine out of ten of the people who seem to get to the top of British society as black people and say that they are then my advocate seem not to manage somehow to to you, you it, it seemed to me that you're you, you together collectively there's a message there that mm. says black doesn't have agency and i want to see black have agency that's very very interesting i never thought about it like that before but when you break it down like that it paints a very startling picture and um, made me think quite a bit that's very very interesting um you spoke about the windrush i wanted to quickly touch on your work with regards to the windrush um, scandal as well sure. so i'll read this and i quote um Preeti patel saying in 2019 the windrush generation were failed by successive governments that's the that's the short part, short form, but then she went on to talk about how they're going to do better, et cetera, et cetera. And you had joined the, the advisory group, Windrush Advisory Group, uh, in 2019 and have recently resigned as well. What was the reasoning behind the resignation? Right. So I'm a child of Windrush, right? Um, uh, my, my father came in the 50s. I came in the late, late 60s. Um, the Windrush landed in 1948. So... He came before it, I came after it. Um, the scandal, as I've touched upon already, occurred because the government toughened up immigration uh, rules, requiring doctors, um, employers, landlords, etc., to become border agencies, basically. Czech people have the right to be here. Um, People then get caught in it, and the government then responds. The response I'm still waiting for is repeal of those laws. Um, it, the, the government asked uh, Wendy Williams to, in, to uh, do an investigation and publish a report into what uh, the Windrush scandal had caused. 
people uh, who had every right to be here finding themselves being categorized as illegal immigrants. Some deported, some lost their jobs, lost their homes, and so on. In that milieu in 2018, when uh, this matter became very public, after Amelia Gentleman from The Guardian, who has written a very good book on the subject, by the way, um, ex exposed the suffering of some people. Um, I was at the time involved in leading uh, the planning uh, for a, the service to mark the 70th anniversary of the landing of the Windrush that took place on the 22nd of June in 2018. So I didn't feature in the, in the service, but I uh, was the chair of the planning um, group. Um, so when that story broke, it was the, this was all happening uh, together. Um, the first thing that the government did in response, well, not maybe not the first thing, but one of the things the government did in response was to uh, accept the call, which had been made for several years, for a national Windrush Day. And there were competing notions as to what that would mean, but nevertheless, the, the government came down in the middle and said, right, let's establish uh, Windrush Day. Uh, largely because of my role in the planning of that service that made me visible to some government people, um, I was asked if I would be on the panel that would be responsible for promoting Windrush Day and also for helping to distribute the £500,000 fund that was attached to, to Windrush Day to enhance the celebration or the marking. I accepted. I served on that panel for uh, a while, for, in fact, for all the time until it was wound up. Um, after that, of course, the Wendy Williams report came out and she made 30 recommendations uh, to the Home Office. Um, alongside that, the government then said in accepting all the recommendations that they were going to set up a, a Windrush cross-government working group. They asked me to join that group uh, because they were shutting down the Windrush Day group. So I and one other went across into this. So I was invited. There's no, no money involved. This is all voluntary um, pay expenses, but that, that's it. That's all for me. So, so I'm on that group. Now, I'm on that group now for, for two years, I think, up until earlier this year. And the reason I came off that group is because I concluded that the government uh, approach to addressing these issues was just wrongly premised. Um, and I could give you two quick examples of the wrong premising. Um, one of them is that uh, the focus has been on the Home Office and how the Home Office has dealt with um, those people whom it deemed shouldn't be here. But the Home Office was simply responding to government legislation. So it strikes me that if you have a Home Office whose job it is to protect your borders and so forth, then you give it, you make laws in Parliament that says that a doctor must check, a bank manager must check, employers must, must check, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
it seemed to me that if you really want to address the hurt that has been caused to some people caught up in that, um, you don't tinker around with the home office and how the home office did. It's, the, it's like you sentence somebody to death and then you, 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 you get into a fuss about the nature of how you're going to be killed. You know? No, I think it's the, the, the basic premise is in the, the sentencing in the first place. So, so I have said that the problem with the Windrush scandal are the Windrush legislations. Repeal them. Get rid of them. And stop the wind addressing of saying, you know, how can we right the wrong? How can we, you know, and, and we've got a group here from the community, great and good, sitting on a group that's helping us to right the wrongs. Well, this group member is saying, but if you really want to right the wrong, don't just set up a compensation scheme, good as that is. Don't just set up a documentation scheme, just good as that is. Take those pieces of legislation, those egregious pieces of legislation, off the books. So that was my point of departure, because I concluded that the group I was on was nothing more than a fig leaf um, for the government's wrongs and, and, and a sin that continues in that those pieces of legislation remain on the book that has caused a problem in the first place and they should be removed. The second quick thing that, that I say is wrongly premised. So, so the wrong, wrong premising there is I'm saying, by the way, it, it, you're getting at the home office, but actually the problem is not with the home office. The problem is with the legislation. Mm -hmm. And the, the other wrong premising, and I want to give you these two that I, I found really problematic that said, I, I really don't want to stay here. Um, is that when the Windrush scandal broke, it was assumed that this was an all-encompassing problem, that thousands, if not millions of people were being sent home you know, because they, they couldn't prove their right to be here. What time has shown us is that the number of people caught up in unable to prove their right to be here are nowhere near as high, as great, as was initially assumed. Now, some people's response to that, so for example, the government has put aside over 300 million pounds to compensate people. They had expected 15,000 successful applications. It's turned out that they, up to now they've paid 40 million with, let's say, just under 10 offered but not accepted. So if you generous and include that, 50 million right, paid out so far, a long way from 300 million. And some people say 500 million was put aside. And for the number 15,000 uh, successful applications, so far 3,000 or thereabouts have applied, of which 1,000 have been paid. Now, some people's response to that is to say, well, well, you said there were 15,000, so there must be 15,000, right? Uh, where are they? Why haven't you found them? Well, actually, that was an estimate. That was just an estimate. And that number has been revised down three or four times, by the way, by the government. And that 15,000 is no longer there. So people are still using it if they want to make trouble. Um, but the figure is probably more like four or 5,000 now um, that they think. And I don't think they'll get there, personally. Yeah, you know, After four years with massive publicity, there can't be hardly anybody in the country who don't know about a Windrush scandal. And if you, were, if you had been hurt by it and you haven't come forward yet, then you know, uh, I'll come forward, right? But, but, but there can't be many more, is my point, because, because we, there's been wall-to-wall -wall publicity. But, but um, because the government still has those legislation sitting there and are 
messing around talking about reforming the home office as if the home office is stop is going to stop uh, trying to protect um you know protect the country and keep keep those they want out it's never going to stop right? that's a pretense um and um, so, so 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 for me um we need to to uh, remove those things like those legislations that will allow us to be able to look clear-eyed at what is the situation that we now find with regard to how many people have been hurt by these terrible laws. Um, and I go around and ask people, I said, you know, people are saying, well, you know, look at the terrible thing. I say, of course it's terrible, but it's nowhere near as widespread as you thought. In fact, we should be patting ourselves on the back that actually most of us are not in any trouble whatsoever with regard to uh, proving our right to be here. Why we should have to prove it, God only knows. But nevertheless, let's say that that's what it is. So I think the, the wrong premising on the numbers is unhelpful. And the wrong premising on thinking that what you need to do is to reform the Home Office instead of looking at the source of the problem, which are those egregious legislations created deliberately by Mrs. May and David Cameron, 2012, 14, 16. And so that's why I'm out. Very interesting. So essentially, I guess it boils down to one, um, a lack of or incorrect data and two, looking, focusing on the wrong thing. We should be yes. focusing on the, you know, the legislation as opposed to the Home Office, yes. um, which is, yes. yeah, very key, very good points, actually. So to, I like to, just to, we're going to move on to well, a final question. I always like to round up with this question. And then from there, we can do a couple of quick fire questions. But I always like to round up with um, this question here. Uh, what do you want your legacy to be? Um, what do I want my legacy to be? I hope that my legacy will be that I tried to help and I tried to make life better. I have been greatly helped in my life, greatly helped um, by black and white people in this country because i've grown up here you know from 15 16 and i like to feel that the same way in which people have helped me to make a contribution that i can help others to make theirs as well okay amazing thank you for that so i've got a few quick fire questions i'd like to finish up with as well i've got 10 questions here Whatever comes to your head first, you can shout it out and then you can wrap up after that. All right. Are you good to go? Yep. All right. Cool. Let's go. First one. What's your favorite movie? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite movie. Um, Django. Okay. Cool. Not sure the film was called Django, but, but, but uh, yeah. 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 I think Django is the name. Yeah. All right. Let's go next. Oh, Black Theology and Black Power by James Cook. All right, next. Name a song that you can never get bored of. Many Rivers to Cross. Okay. If you could only eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would you... <laughs> well, it would be Caribbean. <laughs> um, I, I think it might be ackee and saltfish and some rice and peas and ah, veg. Those are staple dishes. <laughs> okay. How do you start your day? Um, looking at my phone. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I have a very slow takeoff 
in the in the mornings. Um, I know the thing to do to say as a bishop is that I I pray <laughs> I pray and meditate, but I'd be lying if I did. Um, I, I, I tend to I tend to get up and have a look around, look around, have a cup of coffee, and just peruse, see how the land lies. Great. Okay. Name three people that inspire you. Theophilus A. McCalla, now deceased during COVID, but my mentor, I would say. Um, my mother has to be one of any number, even if it's one, because she showed me how to live in difficult, challenging circumstances. And I think if there's a third, probably from further afield, it would probably be Nelson Mandela. Okay, great. Next, what's the best advice you've ever received? Many years ago when I was a salesman, I took sides in a meeting with, um, with an argument against somebody that I shouldn't have. And when the meeting was over, um, another person who was, I think it was my boss, came to me and said, Joe, whatever you do in life, don't take sides with things you do not know anything about. That's very good. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Okay. Next one. If you were to dedicate the rest of your life to one charitable cause, what would you pick? The upbuilding strengthening of the agency and self-determination of the black community in Britain. Great. Final two questions. What's the kindest thing that someone has ever done for you? <laughs> there are so many. There are so many. Um, but I think that maybe the most effective thing is um, the little weedy white guy who um, dropped a note through my door some years ago to say, a friend has told me that I should invite you to come and visit the center for black, the center for um, uh, the urban, not the center, visit the urban theology unit, a center in Sheffield. And from that innocuous note through my door, from somebody I never, I'd never met before, I went back to education, did my master's degree and my PhD with that guy as my supervisor as I studied part-time for maybe 10 years of study in total. And I think to this day, he had, he owed me nothing. That generosity of spirit that came alongside this little Jamaican boy, right? This white man from England, weedy white man, Methodist, um, is a great kindness that I will cherish forever. That's great, okay. Because that study has tr transformed my life. Amazing. All right, and the final question. What's one thing people don't know about you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends which people, but uh, most people wouldn't know that when I was young, um, my brothers, particularly the older ones, called me Cutty. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, nice. Let me also not know that I play the guitar. Oh, oh that's really cool. <laughs> cool great all right that's that's the interview wrapped up thank you so much for coming on to the podcast i really really appreciate your time this afternoon uh before we round up have you got any final closing remarks and also 
if people wanted to keep up to date with you and what you're doing, how can they? Well, I think my final um, remark would be that internally, I feel that my best quality is that of a pastor, uh, you know, a pastor who nourishes and strengthens and encourages people to stand on their feet. My mother used to say, every pot must sit on their own bottom, right? So I, I'd like to encourage that as a pastor, uh, nourishing and building up people. So I think that's the, the one thing that people forget everything else that I say, you know, that is a, something I think is worth doing, um, making people what they can be. Um, if people want to follow, keep up with me, I'm, I have three main uh, on online um, platforms. That's Twitter um, and uh, Facebook and LinkedIn. I usually post the same thing on all three every time. And, um, and I guess, you know, they're in the archives of the BBC. I've done a number of programs and broadcasts um, that will be available online. My books are available on, uh, on um, Amazon, for example, and so on, all nine of them. Um, and so, so yeah, just generally I have an online presence and, uh, and uh, that you're welcome to tuck into. Okay, great. That's amazing. So once again, I'd like to give you a massive thank you for coming to the podcast. Very much enjoyed your story and the insight you've given us today. So thank you very much once again. And that's that for now. So thank you for tuning in to everybody listening. That was Bishop Joe Aldred. This is 1000 Voices in Phenomenal. Well, thank you. in to everybody listening that was bishop joe aldred this is 1000 voices and for now people we're out okay that was that as always thank you for tuning in it is very much appreciated and if you haven't already please do consider subscribing to us or following us wherever you're listening to this right now it really does help us in trying to amplify the voices of the people that we speak to also, what did you think about this episode? What did you gain from this episode? What were some of your key takeaways from this conversation? As always, it's always great to hear from you guys. So leave a comment, leave a review wherever you're listening to this right now. Let us know what you thought about this. The next podcast episode is going to be dropping next week, Tuesday, as they release every single Tuesday. So if you'd like to see some previews, a few little snippets from that, then follow us on our social media pages at 1000 Voices UK so that you can keep up to date with that before it comes out. The full YouTube video will drop a few days afterwards as well. So keep an eye out for that. But that's that for now. Thank you for tuning in. This is 1000 Voices and for now people, we're out.